Welcome, welcome. So glad to have you back. But I do need to let you know that your fill-in, Josh, did a wonderful job last week. So you, you chose a very capable fill-in. Thank you for being back and being with us and helping us to prepare us to be in the presence of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we honor and adore you. Lord, we fall down at your feet. We lay prostrate before you because that's the only way that we can be in your presence is with reverence, with awe, with joy, with a worshipful spirit. You said to Moses, take off your shoes for the place that you're standing is holy ground. We recognize, Lord, that any time we're in your presence, is holy ground. So, Lord, we thank you for this, another day in your presence. Another opportunity, Lord God, to hear what you have to say to us from your word. Now, Lord, we pray that you bless us with that. Help us, Lord God, to leave here different, better than when we came. Now, my prayer is, as always, that it would be all of you and none of me that you would increase as I decrease, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in thy sight. Oh Lord, you are my strength. You are my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Well, you should already know where we're at this morning. I just told you, right? Romans 9, would you turn to Romans 9 and stand with me uh, as we read just three verses uh, for now, we'll look at the rest of them later, but we'll read three of them for now. Verses 14 through 16, Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 16. And if you're there, you'll find these following words. What shall we say then? Is there injustice in God, on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on, hum on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Amen. You may be seated as we take a look at this text. I want to talk to you from this thought as we look at Romans 9, God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. Many of you know that Lois Evans, the wife of Dr. Tony Evans, passed away recently. And you probably also know that there was a grand homegoing celebration held in her honor on January 6th there at their church, Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship. Many of you probably are aware of that. I had the privilege not to be there, but to watch the entire funeral on live stream. And it was, I must say, it was quite a beautiful and moving service. There was anointed music from noted artists like Kirk Franklin and even her son, Anthony Evans. There was inspiring words of of reflection 
about Mrs. Evans by people like Dunny, Dr. Sonny Acho, and Pastor Jim Cimbala, and a plethora, plethora of other speakers. Um, without a doubt, the most moving and memorable part of the service, though, came near the end of the almost five-hour celebration when her other son, Jonathan, took the stage to deliver her eulogy. It was, in my humble opinion, the most amazing eulogy that I've ever witnessed in my entire life. And I tell you, I've seen a lot of them and preached a lot of them. This one was something special. Uh, I was able to watch the whole eulogy part of the celebration. And as I watched it, it had me in tears all the way through. It had me in tears because as I watched it, I thought about my mom and the precious memory of the day that I had to stand and deliver her eulogy. And as, as I listened to Jonathan, I couldn't help but to become overcome with emotion as I reflected back on that day and on her life. If you haven't seen it, I would encourage you to find uh, the video of the entire eulogy and watch it. You'll be, you'll be blessed. But if you can't find the entire eulogy, there is a four-minute clip, a part of that eulogy that has gone viral. Most of you, a lot of you, have already seen that four-minute clip. And if you have seen that four-minute clip, you'll, be, you'll recall that in this clip, Jonathan is reflecting on his mom and how they had all been praying so hard for her healing and how God had seemingly not answered their prayers. And as he reflected on that, he shared how God revealed to him in his time of distress and misery and questioning God about him seemingly not answering all these prayers from all these people all over the world. Jonathan said they walked around the house and marched like the children of Israel walking around the walls of Jericho. They prayed hard and he felt like in the moment that God had not answered. And so God reveals to him in this, that there was always only two answers to their prayers. He shared how God revealed this, and he said, either she's going to be healed or she's going to be healed. She was going to live or she was going to live. Either she was going to be with family or she was going to be with family. Either she was going to be well taken care of or she was going to be well taken care of. He says that God said to him in that moment that there was always only two answers to your prayers, and those answers were yes and yes. This clip from Jonathan Evans' eulogy for his mother is relevant for us today because this text in Romans 9 and the scriptures in general present us with an apparent dilemma, which, by the way, 
has been one of the most debated subjects in the history of the church. Here is the apparent dilemma. Here it is. The scriptures teach both God's election and man's responsibility without fully explaining the seeming contradiction. All of the scriptures teach both these things. This inevitably leads us as believers to ask two age-old questions. Question number one, does God elect? Question number two, is man responsible? So, like Jonathan Evans, I believe that the answers to these questions are both yes and yes. The point is that we serve a sovereign God who has the power to answer yes and yes to questions that seemingly contradict each other. We can't figure it out. Uh, our limited wisdom leads us to believe that there can only be opposing answers to these questions because it's difficult for us to comprehend it any other way. For us, it's the way things work. Our minds work that way. We think things have to be that way. We think in terms of positive or negative, in terms of affirmative or dissenting, in terms of up or down, in terms of right or wrong, in terms of yes or no. That's the only way our minds have been trained to think. That's the, that's the way we have been conditioned. I have to be honest with you today. And, I, and in my honesty, I need to admit to you that I myself haven't quite untangled all of this in my own mind. Can I be open? Most of you are in that same boat. You're trying to figure, we're going to talk about it. We're going to help each other today. And we're going to trust God to lead us. See, y'all agreed to pray, with, pray for me earlier. I hope you already did that. If you didn't do it earlier, do it now. And I'm not asking you, don't, don't, don't confuse the reason why I'm asking you to pray for me. I'm not asking you to pray for me because I doubt the word or I doubt the message. I'm completely confident in what I'm saying and what the word of God says. I'm simply asking for your prayer so that I can be equipped right now to communicate it to you in the right way. In a way that God would be pleased, in a way that you would be blessed, in a way that we could all leave here better than when we came. God has confirmed his word many, many, many times over, not just to me, but to all of us, and I trust his word. Nevertheless, <laughs> it's still difficult, isn't it? Uh but Scripture declares both of these perspectives of salvation to be true. Scripture declares that it's both God's, it's both, it's yes and yes. Scripture declares that it is both God's election and man's responsibility. In passages like John 1, 12 through 13, which says this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's the responsibility side. That's the yes on that side. And then 13 says this, who were born not of, the, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. That is the election side. It's yes and it's yes. This seems to be contradictory. And admittedly, the two concepts don't seem to go together. 
However, both are true separately. And although we may not understand it, we can be assured that it's fully reconciled in the mind of God. God is not confused one bit. He knows exactly what he's doing. So here's what I do know and accept by faith. God chooses and elects, and somehow, as only God can do, he incorporates faith into the whole thing. I don't know how he does it, but that's, how he do- that's what he does. And every man is held responsible for the choice he made so that no man can stand before God and claim that he got there by himself. I have faith in that fact that God is sovereign. So in this section of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapters 9 through 11, Paul broaches this subject and answers these questions with a resounding yes and yes. Chapter 9 discusses God's sovereign electing purposes. Chapter 10, Paul discusses man's privilege and responsibility. In chapter 11, Paul discusses God's irrevocable plan for Israel and the church. Throughout this section, nine, chapters 9 through 11, the answers to those age-old questions that we're plagued with are both yes and yes. And Paul breaks it down for us. So today... We examine chapter 9. Uh, earlier, we read three verses from this passage. Now, I'd like to take a closer look at this entire chapter as a whole. The entire chapter, Romans chapter 9. I know it's a big hunk to, big, 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 big hunk to chew on, and it's a lot, right, the whole chapter, but we're going to try to see if we can do this in about 20, 30 minutes. Would y'all keep praying? Amen. If y'all not praying for anything else, I know y'all praying for that. All of chapter 9, this all be about an hour. I promise you, the harder you pray, the faster I'll go. <laughs> Amen. So first thing, first thing Paul deals with in Romans chapter 9 is, is he deals with this. Uh, the, his anguish for Israel. His anguish for Israel. It's in verses 1 through 5. We didn't read it earlier, so real quickly, I want to read those verses to you. In verses 1 through 5, this is what Paul says. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and increasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is, who is overall blessed forever. Amen. In this passage of verses 1 through 5, we can feel Paul's anguish for Israel just leaping off the pages. He is in distress. Can I share with you this? The story of the Bible is actually played out in five separate different episodes or movements. And the goal in all of it is for man to demonstrate God's rule on the earth. Episode one is from Genesis 1 through Genesis 11. And in this episode, God intervenes in chaos and creates the universe and mankind to display his rule on the earth. Episode two is Genesis 12 all the way through Malachi. 
And in this episode, uh, God creates Israel as his chosen people to display his rule and kingdom on the earth. Episode 3 is covered in the Gospels. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's, this is episode 3. And in this episode, God sends his son, the image of the invisible God. Uh, the rule of God in episode 3 is exemplified on the earth. Then we move to movement uh, uh, episode 4. And episode 4, movement 4, is Acts 1 through Revelation 3. And in this movement, God creates the church, his new way to accomplish the goal of displaying his rule on earth. New creation, new Jerusalem, success in the goal. What's common in all of this story until the end is constant failure. All the way through, it, it happens time in time again, constant failure. For instance, in the first movement, mankind failed immediately in the garden. This led to the flood and repopulation of the earth, which only brought on more failure, culminating in the whole Tower of Babel event. You remember that? Let's skip to episode three. Episode three, uh, uh, movement three. In, in this movement, there was a brief, there was brief success as Jesus came and walked the earth as fully God, but then failure crept in again because he was crucified. The church is created in the fourth movement and fails until everything is finally as it should be in the fifth and final movement in Revelation. Notice we skipped in that brief uh, description and discussion, we skipped number two. In verses one through three, Paul laments the failure of the second movement or the second episode, the failure of Israel. The failure of Israel fails in their goal, in their quest. Many Jews were failing to experience Paul looks back on and sees, and not just looking back, but sees it around him in his present day. They were failing to experience the fullness of God's blessing and hence failing to properly represent God on earth while many Gentiles were succeeding at it. We know it's true because Paul says it in verses 30 through 32 of Romans 9. Uh, many of the Jews, God's chosen people, Israel, was, was failing miserably, while many of those who were not chosen by God as, cho as his chosen people were succeeding. Paul laments this. He laments many of the Jews were enemies to the gospel and out of the way of salvation. For this, Paul had great heaviness and continual sorrow. And so then in verses 4, four and 5, it was even more troubling given the fact that Israel was afforded privileges like no other nation. And he lists them. There's seven of these privileges uh, that Paul lists in verses 4 and 5. And he, he lists them. He says this. He says, uh, according to... Well, he doesn't say this. Um, this is my explanation of what he says in 4 and 5. And he, as he talks about these seven privileges, he says, according to Exodus 4.22 and Hosea 11.1, Israel could claim adoption as a nation, adoption into God's family as an entire nation. This was a privilege and a benefit. They were blessed to witness personally the glory of God. 
Many times over, the Shekinah glory of God uh, manifested itself to Israel, and they were able to personally witness. This was a great benefit and a great privilege. Paul says they benefited directly from the covenants. They had uh, as a benefit to them the covenants that God made which directly affected them, not just affected them, but benefit. It was a benefit of being an Israelite that you could claim the covenants of God. So he says that. And then they benefited directly uh, from receiving, both receiving and caring for the law that God gave at Sinai. These were the people who God gave it to. These were the people who were charged with uh, taking care of it, with uh, keeping it, with securing it, with all of that. They, they benefited from this. And then fifth, they had the honor of temple worship. They, they had the honor of being able to worship God in the, in the temple, in the tabernacle, in the temple once it was built, in the tabernacle when it was temporary, being moved from place to place. Only this people could claim this benefit, this honor, to be able to do that. And then six, Paul says, they were blessed by God's promises. All throughout, all along the way, God makes Israel promises. And although Israel often went back on what God had asked them to do, God never, ever, never, ever, never, ever, never, I just want somebody to laugh. Can y'all, y'all like y'all sleep? I know this is a tough one. I know this is not like last week. Last week we were all happy celebrating, jumping and hopping. I was running all around the place. It's a little bit different this week, Brother Sam. But I still need you to help me, okay? Okay, they, they, they. <laughs> so, so, so he never went back on his promises. And this was a benefit to them. And then lastly, Paul, Paul says, uh, their forefathers were the patriarchs. And here's, here's the crowning jewel of it all. They were the nation through whom the Messiah came. And so they had the benefit of all this, the privileges that no other nation could claim. Paul says there were seven of them. And Paul is greatly burdened for the part Israel, for the part of Israel that is lost in spite of all of these privileges just the lost. And so he's burdened because greatly burdened to the point that he uh, is, 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 is saying in Romans 9 that he is in distress. He's in anguish. He's greatly burdened. And because of this, because of the, this part of Israel that is lost, to the point, Paul is so burdened to the point that, that uh, we should be over people that are lost. This is where Paul is, is the same place when we, when we look out and we see someone who's separated from God. We should be in anguish as well. We should be in, in such anguish like Paul that, that we should declare with, with Spurgeon these words. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees. 
imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. This is what our anguish should lead us to. So verse five, verses one through five deals with the failure of Israel and Paul's anguish over that. Next, we move to verses six through 13. And in six through 13, we, Paul discusses the infallibility. So although Israel fails, Paul now talks about the infallibility of God's word. Infallibility of God at first glance, For the reader of Paul's writing, the thought may arise that Israel's failure should be or could be attributed to the failure of God's word because it might seem as though his promises have failed. Just read and and look at what's going on. Israel failed. May lead one. In fact, some were believing this. The failure of God's word. But in verses 6 through 9, Paul addresses this impossible theory. Let's read it, verses 6 through 9. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, Paul says, because obviously some were thinking that. It's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not The children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. In these verses, Paul addresses the the impossible theory that the word of God has failed. Uh, It's impossible for that to happen. There was never a promise of blessing in Scripture to, uh, to every physical descendant of Abraham. That, that, that promise was never there to every physical descendant of Abraham, but rather for those who had a relationship with him by faith. If everything was tied to Abraham physically, then Ishmael would have been able to claim the same as Isaac. But we see that that's not the case. And so Paul says, God's word has not failed. God's word is infallible. In verses 10 through 13, then he moves on to this doctrine that we're wrestling with today. He interjects in verses 10 through 13 this doctrine of election. He deals with it. He he introduces, at least in this passage, this thought, this doctrine. This doctrine, 10 through 13 says this, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, they didn't do anything to merit what God would eventually do. It was not left up to them. It was not dependent on their good deeds, on their merits. Uh, He's getting ready to talk about uh, uh, Esau and Jacob and Esau. And we're doing that. We we just finished that on Wednesday night, then with Sister Cynthia. And so if you were here or if not, you're familiar with the story that God made his decision before either of them were born. And so so Paul uses this to prove his point. He says, neither, uh, nothing either good or bad 
in order that God's purpose of election, first time we see this word in this passage, election might continue, might continue, not start, not be thought about, but that it might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, him who calls. She was told, it continues, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So then, he introduces, at least here, this idea of God making sovereign choices, God make, God's election. And he says, in using this story of Esau and Jacob, that God just decided to choose. Now, it was out of order. We talked about this on Wednesday. Now, it was, it was out of the traditional order. And I don't know if you, if you can relate, but God often does things that are not in our traditional order. And you know why? Because he can. He, he doesn't always follow our script. He doesn't always do things the way we expect him to. If he did, he wouldn't be God. If he always did things according to the way we wanted him to or the way that we're used to things working out, then he would not be God. He would be human, right? But, but, but even we don't. <laughs> and so certainly God, but if we don't, though, for different reasons. God, when he, he does it because he can, because he is ultimately in, in control and in charge. And so what does the Bible say about election? I know it's tough, but what does the Bible have to say about it? I want to share some passages of Scripture to you, with you, that will help us to see what the Bible says about this doctrine. First one is in Ephesians 1.4. Ephesians 1.4 says this, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Acts 13.48 says this, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And then John 15, 16 says this, this is Jesus, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. John 6, 37 through 39, Jesus says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. Just some help for us as we journey through scripture and look at this idea of God's election. So then we move on to verses 14 through 23. And in 14 through, through 23, God, uh, Paul further unpacks the sovereignty of God's choice. The sovereignty of God's choice. I'm not going to read all this passage to you, but suffice it to say this that there are two responses that kind of arise from what Paul just taught in the previous verses. 
Uh, too. And, and, and quite frankly, not only those that read this letter in that day had these responses, some of us have the same responses. There are two that are covered in uh, 14 through 23. Here's the first one, it's not fair. <laughs> you probably, some of you are saying that right now. <laughs> wait, wait a minute now, wait, wait, it's not fair. And then the other one is this, it's not my fault. If all of what you said, Paul, is true, number one, it's not fair. Number two, I'm not responsible. It's not my fault. I, I'm not responsible for what I do if, if what you said, Paul, is true. So, because some of you are saying it right now. I can see it in your eyes. You're saying those, two, those same two things. Let's see what Paul, how Paul deals with it. First thing he does is he deals with, uh, in verses 14 through 18, God's justice through mercy. God's justice through mercy. Because in 14, look at what it says again. What shall we say then? Is there justice on God's part? Injustice, rather, on God's part? By no means. So the question was, is God, because of what you just taught, what you just wrote, Paul, is God unjust? Is God not just? So Paul deals with it, and, and the way he deals with it is this way. He says, God's justice comes through his mercy. Paul has to deal with accusations of God being unjust. The key to understanding why God is not unjust is his purpose of election, is that his purpose of election is to understand that election is based on one thing, the mercy of God. And so Paul illustrates this point by contrasting God's activity in the lives of two men who were contemporaries of each other, Moses and Pharaoh. So he does this. He, he deals with these responses by pulling out two men from history, Moses and Pharaoh. First Moses, in verse 15, in verse 15 it says this, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and will have compassion on whom I have compassion. He says here that justice is not negated by mercy. Paul quotes here from uh, Exodus 33:19. And you'll remember that Exodus, Exodus 33, 19 comes after Exodus 32. And in Exodus 32, you'll recall that Moses had been up on the mountain on Mount Sinai and the people thought that he had been up there too long. And so because they had gotten impatient and they were concerned and they thought that they needed a God, you know what they did. They put all their gold together and what did they do? Somebody help me. I need your help right here. They made a golden calf. And when Moses comes down in Exodus 32, they're in an all-out party uh, with this golden calf they've made who is their now, their God, because they've gotten impatient with Moses. And what happens next? Next, God tells Moses to get the Levites together and to gather the people who believe, who trust God, and get them, but everybody else, wipe them out. And the text says that there were some 3,000 who lost their lives. Because of it, 3,000 had to die. Mercy withholds punishment because, because, because actually all of them could have been taken out. I mean, if God, because God is God, right? His mercy is that he does not give us what we rightfully deserve. That's mercy, right? We don't get what we should have got. And if truth be told, all of them should have gotten what the 3,000 got. Right? But mercy says that he allowed the rest of them to live. Mercy withholds punishment, which is rightfully deserved. 
The guilty criminal cries for mercy before the judge. Grace, however, goes beyond mercy in that it bestows that which is completely undeserved. So, all of us are beneficiaries of God's grace and his mercy. His grace and his mercy. And those that God spared on that faithful day were beneficiaries of both God's grace and God's mercy. And so, God's justice happens. It's revealed through his mercy. And then, verses 16 through 18, Paul helps us to see that mercy is not negated by choice. Mercy is not negated by choice. Paul here in in 16 through 18, let's read it. So then it depends not, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. We read it earlier. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show you my power, show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Mercy is not negated by choice. Here Paul quotes from Exodus 9, 16. Pharaoh was a man who thought he ruled Egypt, a man who thought he himself was a god. Pharaoh was reminded by God that he had been placed on the throne of Egypt so that God might use him to demonstrate the power of God over humanity and earthly rulers and kingdoms. He's being used for that purpose. It was merely a display of divine sovereign choice that delivered Israel and doomed Pharaoh. It's hard for us to see it that way, but even in the midst of what happens to Pharaoh, God's mercy still is distributed to those who are part of his chosen people, Israel. He uses mercy even in this way. Um, Furthermore, the hardening of Pharaoh was an act of grace. So far as the Jews were concerned, it was an act of grace for them. For it provided the occasion for their release because if it had not happened, uh, they likely would not have been released from 430 years of bondage. So at the same time, we see, we see wrath and we see grace, we see mercy, and God is sovereign in how he distributes those things because he is an all-powerful and an almighty God. Paul reminds us in 14 through 18 that it isn't about personal position. It isn't about personal performance. It isn't about one's pursuit of God. It's all about divine choice. So then in verses 19 through 23, Paul addresses the other response. First one is not fair. Remember, the second one is not my fault. He addresses now in 19 through 23 this objection. 19 through 23 reads this way. You will say to men then, why does he still find fault? That's the question, right? That comes. You asking that question, you might be asking it in a different way than biblical language. But you're asking that question. Some are asking that question, right? If all of what you said, Paul, is true, then why am I at fault? For who can resist his will? Nobody can resist his will. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? 
Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel of honorable use and another of dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he had prepared beforehand for glory. So Paul says in this passage, if God hearts, so the, the response is, it's not my fault. Paul deals with it this way. If God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he accomplished his purposes, if God is truly sovereign and his will is inevitable, then how, here's the response, how can he blame mankind for rebellion. Paul doesn't directly, though, answer this question until chapter 10. If you come back next week, come back next week, we'll see Paul directly. He's going to answer it in an indirect way, but he doesn't directly answer this objection until next chapter. Make sure you come back, because I know you want to hear that. So he indirectly answers it. He indirectly uh, uh, deals with this objection here, though, in chapter 9. What he does in addressing it is he addresses, rather, the attitude from which this question was asked. He addresses the attitude from which he says, essentially, God is the potter. And the, and the clay does not ever say to the potter, this is how you need to make me. This is what you need to do. The, you, the clay just simply allows itself to be molded and shaped by the potter. Man is the clay. God is the potter. And Paul says to those who would raise that objection, who are you? Like he says to Job, who are you? Were you here when I formed the, the world? Were you here? Who are you? You have no, you have no right to question he deals with the attitude in chapter 9. He answers the question directly, though, in chapter 10, and we'll get there. But in verses 22 through 23, he says this, What if God, in his infinite, because there, 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 there is a reason. We may not fully understand it. There's a reason. He says, What if God, in his infinite wisdom, decided to do this in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? What if that was the reason? What if he decided to do this so that he can make known to us, I'm a us, are you a us? I'm a us, to make known to us the riches of his glory through mercy. What if that was the reason? So me as a piece of clay have no place questioning an almighty and an all-powerful God, which leads us to this, the fulfillment of God's promises. In verses 24 through 29, the fulfillment of God's promises. 20 th 24 through 29 says this. Even us, I'm a us. Somebody say, I'm a us. <laughs> Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, 
You are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out the sinners unto the earth fully and without delay. And as, they, and as, as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would be like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And so he, he, he leads us to this discussion of the fulfillment of God's promises, talks about God's remnant. Here, here Paul quotes Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, Hosea chapter 1, verse 10, and Isaiah chapter 10, verses 22 through 23, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9, Isaiah chapter uh, 13, verse 19. He quotes these Old Testament passages to remind us, I'm a us. Are you a us? He, re, he does this to remind us that were it not for the pure, simple grace of God, there would be none saved. None would be saved. Because what us really deserve is to not have a chance. But he says, I did this. Those who were not my people are my people. Those who are not Israel are my people. None of us are Israel. None of us are Jews. None of us. But, but we are an us today because of God's sovereign will and his sovereign power. And so Paul points out these Old Testament passages to prove the fulfillment of God's promises to make all of us us. And then lastly, I want to share with you in verses 30 through 33 that the key to all of this is Christ. The key to all of this is Christ. This is what it says in 30 through 33. What shall we say then? I love when he does that because it makes us look back on what did he say then, <laughs> right? So he says, what shall we say then based on what, everything I've just said? What, is, what, what shall we say because of that? Here's what we should say, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The key, so the him, in case you didn't know, and the stumbling stone, in case you didn't know, is Jesus. And that is the key to all of this. Here's what I would say to you, don't stumble over this stone. Don't stumble over this stone. Jesus is the key that unlocks all of this. It's faith and faith in the faithfulness of Jesus. Paul closes this section of this letter this way, that it is Jesus Christ. I love what John Calvin, and I know John Calvin is known for his stance on election and all that, but I want to share with you something he said. He says this, when we claim for ourselves any righteousness, 
we in a manner contend with the power of Christ. For his office is no less to beat down all the pride of the flesh than to relieve and comfort those who labor and are wearied under their burden. It's about Christ. It's about Jesus. Don't stumble over the stone. And I know you think you, you, you may think you don't have a choice. You don't have, like, it's, it's not my responsibility. Paul's going to share with us in chapter 10 that man does have responsibility. So I'll leave you with this final thought. Leave you with this final thought. Even when we don't understand God's plan, we must still trust his sovereignty. I got a pen. I feel like if I dropped it, I could hear it hit the floor right now. I don't know if it's ever been this quiet in this place. But this is, it's okay, right? You have, to, you have to soak this in and understand that his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth is his thoughts above ours and his ways above ours. I haven't unraveled all of it. All I know is I trust him. He's sovereign. He's shown me over time how powerful he is. And all I'm left to do is hold on to his unchanging hand. Because the God I serve is an immutable God. He changes not. He keeps his promises. And I am an us because of it. Father, we thank you for your grace, for your sovereignty. We praise you, Lord, today. Help us, Lord God, to be people of faith even when we don't completely understand. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.